0: All right. Well, I I promised that there would be practical application today, and I lied to you. I lied right to your face. I am very sorry. It uh, you may find some practical application. I hope you do in all of these that aren't specifically here's what we need to learn. Um, just reading scripture without that can be useful, but that will be next week. This week uh, we're gonna finish up um, the death of Stephen. We've been talking about Stephen for over a month now, 6 weeks. Way back at the beginning of chapter 7, the high priest asked Stephen a question. He said, "Are these charges against you true?" What charges are those? The charges of blaspheming against Moses, the temple and by extension God himself. And those are pretty major charges. Those are life on the line type charges, in fact. And Stephen begins answering for these charges by turning to the Sanhedrin council, his face radiant, aglow with the presence of the Holy Spirit as he confidently and fearlessly addresses the Jewish council who hold his life in his hands. And he declares to them, brothers and fathers, listen to me. Listen to me. This is not how the powerless address the powerful. This is not how the guilty address their judges. This is not how a peasant addresses a priest. They don't say, listen to me. Um, This is, in fact, how a prophet would address a wayward and stubborn people of God. Stephen is a new prophet for a new era in which the Creator communicates and covenants with his creatures in a new way. His is a voice and a witness that is no less powerful, no less crucial, no less life-giving than the words of Abraham, the life of Abraham, The words and life of Moses, or David, or Isaiah, or Peter. Stephen is right there with each one of those men. Beginning with Stephen's life, as we studied in chapter 6, continuing now through to his speech, which we've carefully studied in chapter 7 for several weeks now, and now to his death, which we will study this morning. Stephen ushers in a new age in the kingdom of God. You're familiar with all of this stuff behind me. It's been up every week. An age in which God is not confined to a fancy golden box called a temple in the middle of some tumultuous Jewish capital called Jerusalem. An age in which God works outside of the borders of the Holy Land, as he famously had with Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, and the tabernacle. An age in which all people have access to their Heavenly Father, not just the spiritual elite like these Sanhedrin members who cage off their Creator and fence off common sinners from His presence. An age where truth-tellers are still murdered for the truth that they witness to, as we'll see today in our reading, but where these faithful witnesses, or in the Greek, these faithful martyreos, the Greek word for witness is martyr an age in which these faithful witnesses are welcomed into glory by the one whom they bear witness to, Jesus Christ, Son of God and King of creation. So Stephen marks a turning point in the life of the church. I've been saying it for weeks. These three principles that I keep harping on, number one, a God not confined to earthly locations, number two, a worship of God not confined to the temple, and three, a people of God who constantly reject his truth and his truth tellers, These three principles, if they are true, create shock waves in Jerusalem, the rumblings of which are still being felt today across the time and space between 1st century Palestine and 21st century north-central Alberta. We still feel the effects of these things if they are true. And, of course, we believe they are. Next week we'll discuss the significance of Stephen's speech for us in more specific terms. But today... As Stephen is stoned to death while being given a revelation of the Lord Jesus in his glory, in the presence of someone very familiar, by the way, we will see the enormous impact that his prophetic truths would have on the Jews, the believers, human history, and eternity itself. Uh, maybe even you and I. Strangely, also, we will see how to die well, I believe. I believe Stephen is a good example of how to behave and speak and think as our life is nearing an end. So let's read Acts 7, verses 51 to 60. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the Righteous One, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. A better translation is, they gnashed their teeth at him, ground their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand, and he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a familiar young man named Saul. As they stoned him, stephen prayed lord jesus receive my spirit he fell to his knees shouting lord don't charge them with this sin and with that he fell asleep he died when stephen began his response to the charges of blasphemy by wandering through the old testament scriptures discussing the patriarchs and moses i'm sure there was a strong sense of curiosity amongst the Sanhedrin. Hey, you're being charged with blaspheming Moses and the temple. What do you have to say about this? And Stephen takes them all the way back to Abraham. I'm sure that was curious for them. They were thinking, where's this guy going with all this talk of foreigners and promises and oppression? We know these stories backwards and forwards. Why is he running through our own history like this? He does that to highlight the fact that though they know these stories and are in fact descendants of these stories, the heroes in these stories, well, They've missed the point of these stories. And Stephen highlights their ignorance in sudden and spectacular fashion, which gets the Sanhedrin riled up in equally ferocious and mob-like ways. Remember, up to this point, he hasn't pointed his finger at the Sanhedrin at all. He's just highlighted for them what Scripture says about Abraham and the patriarchs, about Moses and the law, and about the tabernacle and the temple. He just says what Scripture says about those things. But now... He turns to the Sanhedrin and he points his finger at them. And they don't like it very much. Immediately after quoting Isaiah sixty-six one, which we looked at last week, uh, in verses 49 and 50, where heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool, and no human construct could ever do better than that. Immediately after saying that, apparently Stephen's point is made. Stephen is satisfied with his arguments in scripture. Because after that, he goes for the throat. He goes for the jugular of of the Sanhedrin for the next three verses. He calls the leaders of God's people, the Jews, a bunch of obstinate, stubborn, stiff-necked, disobedient fools. Now, nobody likes to be called those things, but particularly those people who believe they interpret Scripture the proper way. They don't like to be told that they are stubborn and ignorant. It's exactly the sort of complaint, however, that God himself had made against his newly formed nation of followers right after the events highlighted by Stephen in verses 39 to 41. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, verses 39 to 41. Stephen is talking about the golden calf incident, that there's Moses on the mountain, God's presence is right there, and still the people turn their hearts back to Egypt and build a golden calf. Immediately after Israel sins by building this golden calf, God says these words about his newborn children in Exodus 33.5. He says, You are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. That's what God says about Israel as after he finds out they're building this golden calf. You are a stubborn, stiff-necked, ignorant people. And if I were to go with you to the Holy Land, I'd get so fed up with you, I'd wipe you out. That's how stubborn they are, how stiff-necked they are. There on Mount Sinai, they had the presence of God right there in the midst, right? They had life-giving law as a gift from their father. They had holy men declaring truth, and still they worshipped fancy golden things that they themselves had made, and doesn't that sound familiar? The Sanhedrin is guilty of all these things. They too had God in their midst, and they crucified him. They too had life-giving laws given to them as a gift from the father, and they crucified Jesus for teaching them. They too had holy men proclaiming truth, And they are about to stone one to death in a few moments. And they too still choose to worship a fancy golden building that was made by the hands of their forefathers rather than the God who they claim dwells in that temple. The temple was their idol, just like the golden calf. And the Sanhedrin do not appreciate the connection made between them and the stubborn wayward generation around Moses' time. They really don't like that. They also don't appreciate the next accusation Stephen makes about them in verses 52 and 53. Prophets and truth-tellers are always being rejected by God's people. That just comes with the territory of being a prophet. Israel's history is littered with people who faithfully confront Israel with a message from God, usually regarding their misguided and ignorant false worship. Are you listening, Sanhedrin, by the way? Because that's what Stephen is accusing you of. False, misdirected worship. And whenever these prophets would confront Israel as payment for giving for bringing a message of correction and repentance, those prophets were often murdered ruthlessly by the people they brought their message to. According to tradition, Isaiah, the Isaiah, was sawed in half for his words. Jeremiah, the Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah, was stoned to death. Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, was murdered right there in the temple between the holy place and somewhere else. And so time after time, the prophets brought a message that Israel should already know. They should know better, but they need this message anyway. And when they bring it, they are executed, exiled, rejected, murdered for it. Time and time again. Even the greatest prophets. Now, it's true that in Jesus' time, with the gift of foresight, The Jewish people saw the error in their ancestors' ways and sought to correct it. They knew that their ancestors had did wrong by persecuting these prophets. And so they erected monuments. They paid tribute to the fallen prophets. In fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of stating, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. That's what Jesus says the Pharisees are thinking. That the Pharisees saw how wrong it was for those prophets to die, for bringing their message and the pharisees are saying we would never have done that we we are guilt or we are innocent of that but stephen says ha you are not ancestors of the truth telling prophets like you think you are you're ancestors of the men and women who ignored oppressed and murdered those truth tellers you think you wouldn't have done those things but stephen's saying you are doing those things right now you are actively doing it You even went so far as to execute the Son of the God on whose behalf those truth-tellers spoke. You didn't just execute the prophets who spoke for the Most High. You executed the Most High. You killed Jesus, the Son of God himself. And here's me, Stephen, carefully and methodically outlining truth as seen in the beloved scripture that you know so well. Truth about the insignificance of the temple as seen in scripture. Truth about how God works frequently outside the borders of the Holy Land, outside of Israel, as seen in scripture. Truth that you should know, because you should know scripture, and you get, and you know what you do? You execute me. You are not ancestors of the prophets. You are ancestors of the hard-hearted and rebellious non-believers who rid themselves of these truth-tellers, who rid themselves of truth itself. They are not descendants of those who obeyed truth. They are descendants of those who rejected and executed truth and truth tellers. Stephen is accusing them of, similar to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, worshipping idols their own hands had made. He is accusing them of resisting and rejecting the plans of the God they claim to know and serve. He is calling them worse than just sinners. Remember, Pharisees and Sadducees, they're obsessed with being removed from sinners. But Stephen is accusing them of being worse than sinners. He's accusing them of being traitorous, rebellious, blasphemers. Which is worse than just your average run-of-the-mill sinner. The very thing that Stephen himself is on trial for, blasphemy. He's turning back to them and saying, no, the real blasphemers here are you. He turns their accusations against them using the inerrant words of scripture to plead his case for him. And so, as you can imagine, this doesn't go over well. Their curiosity over how Stephen was defending himself through the patriarchs and through Moses, that curiosity comes to an end, and it's replaced by blind, violent rage, and they can no longer be restrained. As the Greek says, they ground their teeth at him which I don't really know what that looks like, or something like very cartoony to me. But it's akin to shaking your fist, or, or pulling out your hair in anger, or stomping your feet, or any other gesture that accompanies the physical loss of control over your anger. You just cannot control your rage anymore. And so they carry out the very thing that Stephen condemned them for. They begin to do violence against a truth-teller, which Stephen said they would, and they do. But the amazing thing is that despite the flood of violent rage filling this courtroom to the brim, like a kettle on the stove vibrating and steaming before the imminent eruption, that's what this room is like. It's ready to boil over. Stephen doesn't even notice. He doesn't pay any attention to that. He hears no screams of wrath. He sees no grinding teeth. He feels no escalating tension. The reason that his senses don't pick up on any of the boiling rage bubbling all around him is because his focus has been drawn drawn to something beyond the scene in the courtroom. Something beyond the tangible, natural world of angry men that he's surrounded by. Something beyond that. But something no less real than those seething Sadducees in his midst. It's not less real. It's just they can't see it. Stephen is given a precious gift in his last moments a gift reserved for those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, as Stephen is. It's a gift that totally absorbs all of his senses, drowning out the flaming wrath surrounding him. Stephen is focused wholly and utterly on Jesus. It's it's very powerful to me, the idea that as he's about to die, and the portrait of the, the anger and wrath and, and the awful things they must have been shouting at him, in the midst of all that, he doesn't pay attention to any of it. And he sees only Jesus in this vision. And Luke describes Stephen's vision in verse 55 in this way. He says, Stephen looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. What a, what a vision. What a gift in a time of need. What a comfort and a source of hope to someone taking his last breaths. To see Jesus himself wrapped in glory, knowing with certainty that you have been faithful to him and will soon be joining him. What a blessing. But there are two important aspects about this description of Stephen's inspiring vision. And before I get into them, I want to give you a bonus second stretch. Because I know that this sermon is a bit longer than other ones I've done. I'm about halfway done. And because it's long, if you need to, get up and have a stretch. I want to give you a bonus stretch time. So I don't want you to fall asleep. I think it's all important. So go ahead have another day. And to you, faithful podcast listener, I want to give you an opportunity to do the same because the sermon is quite long. So if you want to get up and get a coffee, if you want to stand up and stretch and have a break, please feel free to do so podcast will start again in 15 seconds. I think that's enough of a break. So, two important aspects about this description of Stephen's inspiring vision, and they're easy to miss. The first detail is this. Do these words, Stephen's description of his vision, do they sound familiar? That I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at God's right hand? Does that sound familiar to anyone? Where was the last time we heard that? There's a specific moment in the Gospel of Luke that this is an allusion to. Jesus had been in a very similar position to Stephen just a few years earlier. In fact, Jesus had found himself before this exact same Sanhedrin council, maybe a few members gone or died or whatever, but basically this group of men who are putting Stephen on trial, Jesus stood in trial before these same guys. And he was ordered to speak for himself too, just as Stephen was. According to Luke 22, the council ordered Jesus to answer, Are you the Messiah? That's what they ask him. Everybody's saying you're the Messiah, son of David, son of God. Is that true? Is that who you are? Are you the son of God? Sorry, are you the Messiah? Jesus' reply to are you the Messiah is this. If I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. That's Jesus' answer. They say, are you the Messiah? Jesus says, well, from now on, you're going to see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand. And at those words, those are the words that the Pharisees and Sadducees say, we don't need to hear any more. Crucify him. Get rid of him. Blasphemy. Because he's basically equating himself to God. These are the words that got Jesus crucified for blasphemy. And guess what? When Stephen declares that he sees this very same rabble rousing Jesus in heaven, standing at the right hand of God, well, those are the magic words the Sanhedrin need to hear. Because right after that, Stephen is rushed out and stoned to death, just like Jesus. It's the same words. So in other words, as F.F. F. Bruce writes, Stephen is in the same place and was making the same claim on Jesus' behalf with the same result. Stephen is vindicating Jesus, meaning he's proving Jesus right. He's declaring that the very words that God both of these truth-tellers condemned are in fact completely true. Jesus declared it of himself. God honored that de- declaration by bringing Jesus up to his right hand. And Stephen bears witness to it. He sees it and and bears witness to it. And the Sanhedrin stands condemned for not believing it themselves. Jesus is at the right hand of God. Stephen's witness about God is true. And this is his witness. That his Lord Jesus is alive and he is glorious and he is powerful and he is moving beyond the temple and beyond Jerusalem and fulfilling all his promises in scripture by doing so. Jesus predicted it, God fulfilled it, Stephen witnessed it, and the Sanhedrin is condemned for resisting it. That's the first thing. The very words that got Jesus executed, that the Son of man would be seen standing at the or sitting at the right hand of God. Stephen he says, no, it's true. I see it. I, I behold it. I'm telling you, this is true about Jesus, that all the words he said of himself are real. There he is in glory and power. I see it for myself. And those very words are what well, get Stephen executed as well. The second thing is much smaller, but no less fascinating. In fact, just a couple moments ago, I stumbled over it. In Luke 22, when Jesus speaks of the Son of Man and God's right hand, What is the position of the Son of Man? What does Jesus say? He says, you will see the Son of Man, what, at the right hand of God? Guesses? Sitting, seated at the right hand of God. Very specifically, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. He's not prancing about in power. He's not somersaulting in power. He is seated in power, very specifically. When Jesus spoke this before the Sanhedrin, he was actually forming a combination of two different prophecies. So stick with me here. The first is Daniel 7, where a son of man meets the ancient of days on the clouds of heaven and receives unending power and universal dominion from God. So there's Daniel 7 in mind when Jesus says it. There's also Psalm 110 verse 1, which is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit, sit, sit. Sit in the place of honor at my right hand. So, What is the Lord's Lord doing at God's right hand, very specifically? Sitting. Where did Jesus say the Son of Man would be positioned at God's right hand? That's right, sitting. Now that we get to Acts 7, and Stephen sees the Son of Man, that is Jesus, and the Son of Man is indeed at the right hand of God, the position of power and honor, but this time, is he sitting down? He's standing. He's standing. He isn't sitting. He's not seated on a throne. He's standing. When Stephen sees Jesus, despite what Psalm 110 says, despite what Daniel 7 says, despite what Jesus himself says, the Son of Man is not sitting. What is Jesus doing? He's standing. It's a very specific detail. Not lightly are the words of Scripture or the declarations of Jesus altered. That only happens for very specific reasons. So why the difference? It seems like such a small detail, right? I'm really harping on it too, I know. He's not sitting, he's standing, and that's a big deal. Well, it may or may not be a big deal, but what is it communicating? What does it mean that despite the prophecies, despite what Jesus himself says, what does it mean that he's not seated, he's standing? Well, no one is certain why Jesus is standing when when Stephen sees him. No one knows for sure. Some commentators think it's because Jesus hasn't fully taken his seat yet. As in, not until he returns, will he be seated in power? Hold on, I got lots of ideas. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's just that he hasn't fully taken the throne yet. Others think Jesus is rising to greet his faithful uh, witness and to welcome Stephen home, kind of as a, a housewarming thing, that he rises to greet him. Perhaps. What I think is being communicated by the fact that Stephen sees, very specifically, Jesus standing is this. It's a legal situation, right? This, is, this whole story is a big courtroom drama. When I introduced the story of Stephen, I, I began with, we all love courtroom dramas. And that's exactly, well, no, not many people did, if you'll remember. Angie likes Law and Order, and that was about it. But this is a legal situation. This is a courtroom with judges and defense and witnesses, right? Well, in Luke 12, Jesus promises the following. He says, I tell you the truth. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. And he continues on and says, And when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself. Don't worry about what to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. Doesn't that sound like what's happening here? That Stephen is standing up advocating for his Christ? And is being given the words he needs to preach, That he, he's certainly not worrying. You don't get the impression that Stephen's worried or afraid of anything that's happening to him, right? I think, and I didn't make this up, I read this in both of my commentaries, I think that the reason Jesus is standing is that he's behaving like a lawyer defending his client in court. He's advocating on Stephen's behalf. He's bearing witness to the truth of everything that Stephen has said. Stephen has faithfully acknowledged Jesus, trusting the Holy Spirit during his great trials. And Jesus said that if you do that, the promise is that he will be acknowledged in return. Stephen will be acknowledged in return. That those who rise up to defend Jesus will themselves, Jesus will rise up to defend them in the last days, and in Stephen's case, in his last moments before death. Jesus is rising up to defend Stephen against his accusers with supreme authority and power. When a judge rises up, what does the courtroom do? They rise with him. They, they stand at attention out of show of respect and honor. Well, Jesus, he's not just a lawyer here advocating on behalf of Stephen. Remember, Jesus is actually the judge of all things, which is what, what Bill was mentioning during communion. Judge not lest you be judged. Well, who does the judging? It's not the Father anymore. The Father turned that authority over to the Son. Scripture is very clear about that. Jesus isn't just an advocate. He's not just a defense lawyer for Stephen. He is the divine judge. His word is, is final and authoritative. So when the judge rises to declare something, he does so with purpose and power. He does so to deliver a verdict. And for Stephen, the verdict is this, and this is my one great hope. This is, Any good that I do is with this hope in mind, and I'm sure it's true for you. And the hope is this, that we would be, that our verdict would be faithfulness. That we would be found faithful. Jesus stands to support his key witness. And soon his witness will be joining him in glory. He's given that vision. So maybe there is an aspect of Jesus standing to welcome. But I think mostly it's Jesus fulfilling his promise. That if you stand before me, and if you proclaim me, and if you trust the Holy Spirit to give you what you need, then I will stand for you. Isn't that something? So, that little word standing, he's not sitting. There's great power even in that one tiny little word. Yet, yeah. right. Yeah, it brings to mind that God's word is alive, that he's not just seated and still. And that's exactly what the tabernacle tells us. We talked about that last week. Is the tabernacle is meant to, it's designed so God would go with his people. And here's Jesus. He's not just sitting with his arms crossed on his throne, watching it all unfold. He stands up to advocate for us, for the faithful followers. And so Stephen sees Jesus in his glory. But that glory is not restricted to the temple, as the Sanhedrin believe. That that glory is global. It's cosmic. It is far beyond Jerusalem. Remember, the heavens are his throne, the earth is his footstool. The glory is not contained to this temple that they're all fighting about right now. Here's a great quote from F.F. Bruce. I put it up here just so you can follow along. I know sometimes it's better to read it than to just listen to it, but it's a great, great quote. So great, in fact. So I, I read two commentaries um, before every sermon. There's two that I study. One is an old one by F.F. F. Bruce. The other is a much newer one by some guy named um, Fernando something. Sorry, sorry, Fernando. But this Fernando guy is a, a student of F.F. F. Bruce. And so he frequently quotes... This first commentary that I read, word for word, and and gives credit to Bruce for his thoughts. So it's interesting to read. So I read the Bruce one first, and I make my highlights, what I think is important. Then I read the second one, and he highlights very specifically many of the same things that I highlight, including this quote. The second guy, he quoted FF Bruce word for word. So this, I thought it was so beautiful and powerful. The presence of the Son of Man at God's right hand meant that for his people, a way of access to God had been opened up more immediate and heart-satisfying than the temple could provide. Stephen sees Jesus. He's right there. Jesus stands, perhaps is welcoming him, certainly is advocating for him. That's opened up for us. You don't need to go to the temple. In fact, it has nothing to do with the temple. Because the Son of Man is at God's right hand, we have access to that God. It meant that the hour of fulfillment had struck, and that the age of particularism And what that means is an age in which only a specific group of people in a specific nation with a specific set of beliefs could experience God. That's done away with. That is no longer accurate of how God is working with humanity. It's not an age of particularism. That's come to an end. Instead, the sovereignty of the Son of Man was to embrace all nations and races without distinction. Under his sway, there is no place for an institution which gives religious privilege to one group, in preference to others. That is so beautiful and so powerful, and what it means is that this speech by Stephen is a turning point. It's a turning point. It's it's the hinge on which on which the gate is swung open, and we are invited in. Because if this isn't true, then we are not pro- part of the promise, not part of the blessing. We're just a bunch of Gentiles. We're just we're just a bunch of non-Jews. So from here on out, the mission of the gospel explodes outwards. Quite literally, actually, as we'll see in two weeks. This is the starting point from which the gospel spreads out. Not just, not just geographically spreads out, but demographically. By who it spreads out to, who the message goes to. The Son of Man, seated at the right hand of God, stands to defend all his faithful witnesses, wherever they may be. We don't need to go to the temple to meet God. We go to God's Son to meet God. And I'll say that again. We don't need to go to the temple to meet God. We go to God's Son to meet God. No matter who you are, no matter your nationality or your weaknesses or your history of sin, no matter who you are, you can go and meet your Father because He has already come and met you through the person of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, the particularism it just means that that previously God dealt in particular ways with a particular people, with a particular set of rules, and that He could only be found, they thought, in one particular building, in a particular city, in a particular nation. That so that's done away with, and that's those three principles that I keep harping on you about, Stephen's three principles: a God not confined to location, a worship of God not confined to a location those that's what this is that's what bruce is saying has been abolished that that particularism it's done away with and now without race without distinction we can go to the father as enabled by his son jesus i i love this quote i might get it tattooed on my chest or something <laughs> i won't okay yeah yeah exactly i need a chest first yeah And so Stephen's accusers have heard all that they need to hear to execute Stephen for blasphemy according to the law. Now, I put these six things here to highlight the fact that they do it all according to the law. In fact, they cover their ears. Scripture says they cover their ears like a bunch of four-year-olds. No, 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 I can't hear you. I can't hear you. But the reason they do that is so that they wouldn't be consumed by God for merely listening to such blasphemy. That's what the Jews believe, that even if you hear it, not believe it, but hear it, you'd be executed. That was their belief. And so they're being very faithful here. If somebody blasphemes, they must be stoned to death. That's thing number one. thing number two. They take Stephen outside the city in accordance with the law. You couldn't stone them inside the holy city. You had to take them outside the city and stone them there. Thing number three, the primary witness. This is how they did a stoning in those days, and it's awful. Actually, they didn't like to do it. it. The law that the Sanhedrin governed with... They didn't want to do this. This was a last resort. But if it had to happen, this is what they did. First, the primary witness shoves the person over a steep, like it's like twice the height of the person is what they're supposed to shove them off of. And if that kills them, great, they're done. But if that doesn't happen and it doesn't seem to have happened with Stephen, then the second step is that the next witness takes a big stone and drops it on their heart from above that doesn't kill them, then you need more witnesses. These witnesses pick up stones, and together, as we saw in the story of Achan's sin, a few, we studied Achan when we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, then the whole community of witnesses takes up stones and throws stones at him until he is dead. Just bombard him until his life bleeds out of him. It's awful. So these witnesses are not merely eyewitnesses. That's not what the word witness means here. As we see in number six behind me, These witnesses, according to the law, are the ones doing the actual executing. That's what is meant by witness. They are following the law right down to the letter. How very faithful of them. They are doing the stoning exactly as the law permits them and declares they should. They're following the law. The problem is they're missing the author of the law, the one who perfected the law and who made the law, the one for whom the law points to. That's who they're they're executing one who bears witness to that. In their obedience to the law, they persecute a witness to the lawgiver, And that is tragic. And by the way, where do all these murderers, I mean, sorry, witnesses, where do these witnesses leave their coats? Whose feet do they leave them at? Saul. A young man named Saul. By the way, the coat watcher, the garment watcher, usually had the job of being herald as well. So they would loudly proclaim the charges against this person and why they're being executed, so this is not Saul is not a bystander; he is very active he is a participant in the death of Stephen, and Saul himself later in acts makes that clear about himself he He has no misgivings about his role in this. He had a very active role. this young man named Saul. I wonder if we'll hear from Saul again. I wonder, but before Stephen is finally dead. As the stones are being thrown along with the false claims of blasphemy, and his name is being slurred, as he's dying, Stephen manages to make two powerful statements which both echo the words of Jesus when Jesus himself was found in a similarly unjust death circumstance. Right? A martyrdom. So I'm going to close with these things. The two words of Stephen. In Luke twenty-three forty-six. Jesus' final words, according to the Gospel of Luke from the cross, are, Lord, receive my spirit. Well, in Acts 7.59, Stephen says the exact same thing. Lord, receive my spirit. The only difference, and it's a big difference, Jesus commits his spirit to God, the Lord. But not Stephen. Stephen is committing his spirit to a new Lord, Jesus. That's how highly Jesus has already been elevated in the, in the mind of the church. He is equal to God. and That's exactly the kind of blasphemy that's getting Stephen stoned in the first place. Stoned to death in the first place. So that must have really enraged the Sanhedrin when he said, Lord, receive my spirit, and they knew he was talking about Jesus. So Stephen's, those are Stephen's second last words. They echo Jesus' last words. But Stephen's last words also echo Jesus' second last words. And illustrate the heart of grace and forgiveness that makes a true Holy Spirit-filled person a a real disciple, a real follower of God. As with Jesus on the cross, Stephen speaks on behalf of those who had spoken against him and against his Jesus. He asks God not to hold this sin against him. And isn't that a truly heroic last set of words for a faithful follower to make? Uh, You must be fully, completely enwrapped in grace yourself. You must be fully have learned the lesson that Bill mentioned this morning, Judge not lest you be judged, if, as they're stoning you to death, as each rock pelts you in the face and in the body, you're able to say with your last words, "God, please forgive these people for doing this to me." truly heroic, and so with that, as the Greek says, Stephen falls asleep, according to acts seven sixty, which is an unexpectedly peaceful ending to a disturbingly violent and brutal murder. What's happening to Stephen is not falling asleep. It's nothing peaceful like that. But it's fitting with the demeanor with which Stephen accepted his fate and it anticipated his arrival to glory, that is, slipping off into something else, falling asleep. So it makes sense. It seems like he was merely sleeping. But his spirit is now fully awake, or ready to be awakened, In the eternal presence of the one who he had so faithfully witnessed about. His body is sleeping. His spirit is fully awake. And so I'll close with this. Stephen changes everything. Just as Abraham changed everything. Just as Moses changed everything. Just as David changed everything. Just as Peter changes everything in the beginning of Acts. So too does Stephen change everything. There's a reason we focused on him for six weeks already, and there's still two more weeks to go. It's because his life, his speech, and his death all point to God doing an enormous new work amongst his people. It goes back to that quote by F.F. Bruce that I had put up. We see how closely Stephen was connected to Jesus in action and word and presence. In action through his life, he took care of widows. In word, during the speech that we've talked about, he spoke eloquently and powerfully, Witnessed for jesus and his presence in his death we see how much he was in the presence of god he literally sees jesus on the throne he is a hero stephen is a hero there's so much to learn from stephen and i hope today that you were encouraged by the events that led to his death his response to them i hope you take note of the stubbornness of the sanhedrin and i need to take note of this as well how stubborn they were in the face of truth i hope you see the beauty of a creator who stands up to defend you he rises to plead your case for you i hope you see how the faithful can die well pointing to the glory of jesus it's interesting that in stephen's speech he goes so, he goes to the old testament highlights his he makes his points and then he turns to them viciously and says but look what you are doing you're you're murdering the holy ones and you murdered the holiest one and now you're going to murder me But right after he points his finger, he doesn't stay with his finger pointed at the Sanhedrin. Where does his finger then go? It begins to point to Jesus. It's not enough for us just to point at the world and say, you're wrong, you're corrupt, you're broken. If it doesn't also point to Jesus, it's missing the point. And Stephen's death does this so well. It doesn't just point out what's wrong. It points out what's right. Jesus, glory. And so he dies very well. Next week, we will examine what all of this means for us in practical ways, I promise. But for now, may it inspire us to live like a truth teller, no matter the cost, in order to experience true glory. Let's pray. Jesus, you are seated and standing at the right hand of your Father. You have all of that glory and power that Stephen saw in you. We we believe this to be true. And I thank you that in your power and in your glory, you stand on our behalf. You advocate for us. You give us life. You are not just sitting around watching. You are active in us. I thank you for Stephen's message. I pray that we would avoid the the um, rebelliousness of the and stubbornness of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I pray that we would see you in your glory one day and that you would call us faithful, just as you called Stephen faithful. All these things we pray in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. All right, happy Sunday. I haven't said it for a long time, but I love you guys. Your pastor loves you.